0: You may be seated. Well, welcome to our first Instructed Eucharist. Um, Before we begin, I'd like to say a few words about the shape of our entire Eucharistic service and also a little bit about our prayer book. Um, You've opened already, I think to page 123 for the acclamation. And if you will just follow along in the little order of services that you were given, all the page numbers, Um, are there for you to follow along for the service. Um, So you'll notice that we, in Easter, maybe you have or haven't noticed, are now using, once again, the renewed ancient text. And in our prayer books, we have two different Eucharistic services. We have the renewed ancient text and we have the Anglican standard text and the reason it is called the Anglican Standard Text is because it is based on the 1662 prayer book, which is considered the classic prayer book. Um, It has been used in the Church of England from 1662 to the present. Um, uh, Although uh, many churches use common worship, which is what we used to use, that's not the official prayer book of the Church of England, according to Parliament anyway. So, It's also the prayer book that, like the 1928, those of you maybe have been Anglicans for a long time or Episcopalians, you remember the 1928 prayer book and there was kind of a big fuss in 1979 when they started the new one. And this is also derived because the 1928 was also built upon this classical 1662 prayer book. Um, You may have noticed when we were using the Anglican um, standard text during Lent and Uh, Advent, those are two penitential seasons, that there were like a little bit longer confessions, a little bit the exhortations to communion were a little bit longer. And this all kind of fits the flavor of the Reformation and the period after the Reformation when the 1662 book was being um, uh, written and used. Um, The, it is the shape and our uh, renewed ancient text still retains the same shape. It just has some elements in it that are a little bit different. And the reason those are different is because in the mid-20th century, there was a huge revival uh, in studying the ancient liturgical texts. And so everybody went back to studying these ancient liturgical texts, and they discovered prayers and texts and ways of doing things that were different from the Roman Mass, as it was after uh, the Reformation, and us, our English prayer book. So out of that liturgical movement, there was liturgical scholars that all got together from across um, Catholic, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, um, Anglican, Episcopal, all came together and studied these liturgical texts and actually came in up with some shared texts. And so in 1970, the first kind of big event that happened out of this liturgical movement was that the Catholic Mass uh, after Vatican II was translated into English. And it wasn't just that it was translated into English, it was very different from the Tridentine Mass Mass, in the same ways that renewed is different from the 1662. So out of that also then came the 1979 prayer book and later common worship. So this is why when you go to a Catholic church, you might find that you recognize a lot of the same words that we use because there's a lot of similarity, believe it or not, between our Protestant liturgies. Some of the theology is very different, but in some of the theology that's said in the mass is a little bit different too, but there are a lot of similarities. Um, so tonight I want you to, we're gonna be using the ancient renewed text because I really think it's a wonderful way of showing you how contemporary contemporary, uh, renewals in our liturgy have drawn on the ancient prayers of the past and of the early church. Um, So we want you to gain a sense of how ancient our worship is, um, that it is in continuity with the very first recorded services of the early church.
1: When I first came to Anglicanism and actually to Episcopal Church, I was confused as to what the Eucharist actually was. I thought, well, that was a communion part, and uh, it was a no, and uh, what is it? And they didn't know exactly, and so I was confused for quite some time. So tonight we'll try to clear up any confusion with that. Um, We want you to notice first, as we go into this um, Eucharist, the service for Holy Communion is presented uh, in its whole as a service, of both word and sacrament. Both word and sacrament. Um, and the Holy Eucharist is not just part of a service when communion is is taken, administered and taken. Um, and in fact, in the early church, uh, word and sacrament were not were not separate uh, vehicles or modes of, of, of uh, revelation, but rather they were two parts uh, among other practices that Jesus' followers observed so um, it's interesting in the Johannine tradition uh, the Gospel of John and the epistles uh, it locates word and sacrament in the, in the incarnate in the body of Christ in uh, the incarnate Christ so the words flow from Christ's mouth and and the blood uh, water and blood flow from his pure sight and we'll see that in a bit that's why we use water and blood um, the one incarnate Lord is both word and sacrament And so Word and Sacrament are means of one revelation. And and this this reflects an ancient order for Sabbath worship that comes down to us from the writings of a gentleman named Justin Martyr, who has the earliest description of Sabbath celebrations around 148 AD. It's a long time ago. Uh, All gathered together, this is Justin Martyr, from city and country to one place, and the memoirs Interesting word of the apostles, or the writings of the, and the writings of the prophets, or the writings of the prophets are read. Then the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we rise and together and pray. And when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in like manner offers prayers in the name of the Trinity and thanksgivings. And the people assent saying, amen and there is distribution of each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Mm -hmm. So our Holy Communion service follows a simple pattern of worship given to us by Justin Um, And as Justin did, we include a penitential gathering. We read from the scriptures. We hear and receive an exhortation or a sermon. We have a time of intercessory prayer. And of course the offertory when the bread and wine are brought forward. And then the prayers of consecration that precede the sharing of the bread and wine. And so all the elements of the service from the moment that we acclaim God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian formula, um, all of the service composes a whole and leads to the pinnacle of our celebration, the paschal mystery of Christ and our union with Him. Um, then, as we come down from the pinnacle and go out, we're commissioned to go out and serve the world with the nourishment of the gospel.
2: And just a brief word about what we just uh, said in our liturgy, we had the acclamation, which we started off here, at also as we tend to start this in the back of the church, as our entrance rite, our entrance beginning into the liturgy. And the acclamation has different forms, which you can see in your prayer book, for different seasons. The standard one we, give, uh, we have for ordinary time is, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. And I tend to like to think of that as kind of like a pledge of allegiance. As we start our service together, we are pledging our allegiance to God and God's kingdom. And we're declaring before one another and before all people that we belong to God and we are part of his family and his kingdom and all that we're doing that flows from this is a reflection of our our allegiance or our citizenship even in God's kingdom. Um, And then we did uh, incense as well around the altar. This is an ancient practice. This goes, of course, way back into the Jewish tradition, our prayers being lifted up as incense before the Lord, uh, being a sweet aroma of sacrifice to God. And uh, for me, as I wrote a few uh, months ago, uh, it, it helps me to sort of think about my full body being engaged in our worship. You know, we can stand, we can hear, we can move, we can see things, and we even smell our worship, even smell the scent of our prayers lifting up to God as we, uh, as we sense the altar and, um, and use that as a mode of our, uh, of our prayers as well. We're going to continue on. Continue on the service on page 124. Uh, would you stand and join together with me in the college for purity on the top of 124? Pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open,
0: all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of your hearts by your inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen.
2: Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, Christ have, have mercy, mercy upon us. us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's join together in saying the glory of Chelsea on the next page. <coughs> glory to, to God, God
0: in the and highest, and peace, peace to Christ Christ his people on earth. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. This introductory part of the liturgy that's just taken place is what we refer to as the penitential preparation to receive the Ministry of Word and Sacrament. In the Collect for Purity, we ask God to send his Holy Spirit into our hearts to make our intentions pure and to enable us to worship him with our whole being. This Collect is ancient. It's attributed to Gregory Abbot of Canterbury around 780. And it was used in England beginning in about that time in what we call the Latin Serum Mass. And here's a little bit of history. The Latin Serum Mass was the mass that was said in England, there were a few variations of it, but that was the Mass that was used in England up until Cramner wrote his first prayer book. Uh, He was the first Archbishop of um, of Canterbury, and he wrote this beautiful prayer book. And what you need to understand is that he didn't just like invent this. He took the Sarah Mass, and he followed the basic pattern of it, but he reformed it, he reformed it. He took out some of the things, some of the worship of saints, some of the adoration of the sacrament, things that the Reformation wanted to correct. Um, And he translated, more importantly, he translated it into English. And his translation into English is considered a masterpiece of uh, what became known as Elizabethan English. Um, And he did this in a way that almost was like a cut and paste. He took prayers from the Sarum Mass. He did a lot of liturgical history. That was the the documents that were available to him then. And he came up with this beautiful beautiful prayer book. So in the Latin Serum Mass, confession was here right after this collect for purity. But Cramner moved it uh, to where we find it today, right before receiving communion in his 1552 book, um, after the sermon. A 15 to 52 book then this practice of saying the Ten Commandments instead here, and often we will also say the Ten Commandments, or we will do what we did tonight, which is a summary of the law. And this is another form of penitential preparation, because as we read these words, this is the rule that we need to align our lives to, and we realize how we always fall short of it. And so, in that sense, we're preparing ourselves to be taught anew, and to learn anew, and to receive God's grace anew. So, in the 2019 prayer book, we actually, it's suggested that we actually go back to where it was originally during times of penitential seasons, like Advent and Lent, and then we do say the confession at that time, right after this prayer. So finally, um, we ended this preparation with praise, with thanksgiving. Um, and this, again, the singing the Gloria, this is a very, very old worship song. And it is a way of, again, preparing ourselves to receive word and sacrament by proclaiming praise to our God, who is in heaven.
2: Let me continue with the call to the day of the greeting for which is down on the bottom of page 125. The Lord be with you and with your spirit let us pray and call it on a different place in the prayer book call it for second sunday of easter almighty and everlasting god who in the paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith through jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns with you in the holy spirit one god forever and ever Amen. amen Maybe seated.
1: The beauty and wonder of the collect uh, for the day is that, as its name implies, it serves to unify uh, us or collect us together to worship. And uh, it also serves to collect up the petitions each of us brings to the service to the, of, of worship. Um, And it clicks all of our individual petitions into one prayer. So we're all drawing together in that one prayer, lifting it up to God under the direction of the priest. And this also serves to set the tone for the ministry of the word that's to follow. And most of our colleagues are taken from colleagues that are written in the 5th and 6th century. So These are ancient prayers. Uh, That's when the form was introduced. And that's as Mary had indicated, that's uh, it was translated from Latin by Cranmer. By it was masterfully done, a tremendous service he did for us, um, into the prayer book. Um, a few new colleagues, Cranmer also wrote a few new colleagues, and um, this practice of inserting new colleagues uh, has continued into the church, uh, has continued, uh, and they're often also adapted from ancient colleagues. Cranmer also another indication of his brilliance and his inspiration he designed his colleagues to correspond to the Sunday lectionary uh, a method which was revived in our own ACNA prayer book um, and in this way the colic also serves uh, as, as a way to focus uh, as a focus for the lectionary readings and quite often I know Mary does this quite often is, is uh, you know she will she will use a in in a sermon or or, or we will make, make mention of it, reference to it. Sometimes people use a colic to base the, the ministry of the word on. Um, and the lectionary devised by cramer has evolved for the centuries. It follows seasonal themes, as well as continuous readings during ordinary time, which is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, the collect for the second Sunday of Easter, which uh, Father James just read, is a translation from a Latin collect that has been in use by the church for over 1,000 years.
0: Mm. Oops, sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, So we're going to have our lessons, and then we're going to have our gospel procession. And you've noticed that, I'm sure, that there's a lot of solemnity in our gospel procession. And it is because it is a special ceremony that dates back to the oldest liturgies, going back to the third century. It actually, goes back even to Jewish uh, synagogue practice where they would, they would process in with the Torah. So it's a very old, old tradition. And for us, what it signals is that We are in the presence of Christ in his gospel. Um, At the reading of the gospel, Christ makes himself present to us in his word, just as if he was present with us as he was present with the disciples 2,000 years ago. For this reason, the gospel book, it's, it's a self, a symbol of Christ with us, is brought in the procession into the midst of the church. And we stand at the reading of the gospel and face the book in order to be addressed and encountered by the one who comes to us in his word. Because the reading of the gospel is such a special act, it is reserved for members of the ordained ministry, usually the deacon. And why the deacon does it is because it's a symbol of of the vows that we give to bring the word of God to the world. And before and after the proclamation of the gospel, we hail and acknowledge not the reading, but that Christ is himself present by greeting him glory to you, Lord Christ. We are greeting uh, Jesus right before we hear his gospel. And you also may have noticed that often some people will make this sign of the cross um, over our foreheads, demonstrating, Lord, be in my mind, over our lips, Lord, be in my lips, and then over our hearts, Lord, be in our heart. So that is what that little sign means that we give at the beginning of the reading of the gospel. So now we are going to hear the lessons and hear the gospel and we will also be moving into the sermon.
3: Our reading from Exodus. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the ordinances. And all of the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 pillars corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people, and he said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God and they ate and they drank. The word of the Lord.
2: God. On Sunday mornings, we always respond with a psalm. Today we'll do Psalm 104, which you can find on page 403, actually in the Book of Common Prayer. So that's Psalm 104, page 403. do verses 1 through 15 do this responsibly by whole verse. I'll read the odd verses. You respond with the even verses. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you have become exceedingly glorious. You are clothed with majesty and honor. You can clothe yourself
1: with light as with garment and spread out the
2: heavens like earth. You lay the beams of your chambers in the waters and make the clouds your chariot and walk upon the wings of the wind. Your messengers, and the of fire your ministers. You laid the foundations of the earth, that it never should move at any time. At your rebuke they fled, at the voice of your thunder they hastened away. You have set bounds for them which they shall not pass, neither shall they again cover the earth. You send the springs into the rivers, which run among the hills. All beasts of the field drink thereof, and the wild donkeys quench their thirst.
1: Beside them shall the birds of the air out their habitation and sing among the branches.
2: You water the hills from above, the earth is filled with the fruit of your works. You bring forth grass for that they may bring food out of the earth and wine that makes glad the heart and oil to make a cheerful countenance and bread to strengthen the heart. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.
3: a reading from 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we all share one loaf the word of the lord thanks be to
2: god, god. stand for the gospel.
0: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Saint Luke. Glory to you, Lord
2: Christ.
0: When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I will tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup. Is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you? The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tonight's scriptures were selected because they of course pertain to uh, the Eucharist and they present for us basically a biblical theology of what the Eucharist means. I would also like to note that in our catechism, there are scriptures under each questions and each of these was indicated under the questions referring to communion. So, I want to explain to you um, how from the very beginning um, God spoke to his people, not just through words, but through symbols like the rainbow and also through a form of worship that he gave him. We talk about liturgy as being the work of the people. And that is the root meaning of the word, the English word liturgy. And that's because all of the people participate in the liturgy. One of the things that happened in the English Reformation is, and the Reformation in general, was that the new Reformation liturgies brought back. People were actually participating in the liturgies. And they were allowed to sing and to You know, in uh, high Latin uh, 14th century masses, they just had professional choirs. The people just sat there and they just looked. And they were actually afraid to come up and even participate in taking the bread. And they were forbidden from taking the wine. They thought that if they ate the bread, they would be condemning themselves to hell. So of course, that all ended in the Reformation. And of course, that also ended with the Catholic Reformation to a certain degree, and even more um, after Vatican II. But so now we can understand liturgy, and this liturgy of the Eucharist, something we all participate in. And one commentator put it this way, liturgy relates to the life of the whole of God's people, who share a continuity of experience and a continuity of response to the saving acts of God from the birth of Israel to the present day. So notice, it's the whole salvation history we're talking about here, and that's what this liturgy is about, is expressing thanks to God for all of salvation history. So in our Old Testament passage today, we have this beautiful picture of what happened when the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was given at Sinai to Moses. So they had remember they had this very long, long uh, sojourn and they reached Sinai. And there the Lord appeared to them in a thick cloud. And this was a, a theophany. This is what we call a theophany. And Moses spoke to God. And he stated his intent to the Israelites that he wishes to form them into a covenant people, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And after the people hear the commandments, and these are the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and they agreed to obey them, Moses builds this altar to the Lord and instructs the people to offer burnt and peace offerings to the Lord. And then he reads to the people from the Book of the Covenant, or the Ten Commandments, and then, this is very significant, he throws sacrificial blood upon the people and marks them with it and says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with his words. So we see how blood set apart the people of God. Uh, The purpose of the application of the blood of the offering ram is to set the people apart to consecrate them, that they become a kingdom of priests. And much like the blood of the Passover lamb separated the newborn firstborn children that God passed over and so blood is what marks the people of God and the Israelites as God's own so it wasn't just the marking of the la- of the doorposts or the marking of the altar it's actually Moses threw the blood on the people it's just a beautiful beautiful picture and then this most remarkable event occurs and that is that Moses and Aram and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the Israelites' elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. And this was, there was a pavement of sapphires. You just, you really, I'm picturing even what it might be in Revelation at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that this actually, I think, is a pre, pre-picture of what that will be. Because it was heaven that they were experiencing. And then it says, that he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel and that they beheld God and they ate and they drank. They had a meal with God. So what we've learned from this is that the Mosaic Covenant is ratified with this sacrificial meal with the Lord and the leaders of Israel. So we can see how in Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper, what this meant when he said, This is the blood of the new covenant that I am making with you. That had such deep meaning to the Jews who knew their scriptures so well. Thus, Jesus mentioning the blood of the covenant is pointing to the character of his death through the shedding of blood, and its purpose to be a sacrificial death that would provide the blood for the sealing of the new covenant. You know, in Luke and Paul often connect this pouring of the cup of the wine to the new covenant. And that's a reference to Jeremiah 31, when God says, I will make a new covenant with you and I will write my law in your heart. This is the covenant. This new covenant is the covenant of the spirit. So Jesus says a few other things that sometimes we find puzzling, like I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What does that mean? Well, through speaking these words, Jesus is placing this meal and his actions in the context of eschatological hope, a hope for a new kingdom that will come. With Jesus' resurrection, the kingdom emerges, but it hasn't fully come. And so Jesus understood by saying these words that his death and resurrection would inaugurate a new covenant, and it's indicated by that statement. But by not vowing to drink the final cup of the Last Supper, Jesus extends his last Passover meal into all the actions that followed the meal, his own suffering and death. In other words, the meal did not finish until he accomplished his sacrifice. In this way, the Last Supper becomes the prophetic sign that sets the kingdom inauguration in motion, which will only be complete at the eschaton. Now, Jesus doesn't drink wine even when it's offered to him when he's on the cross. And some people believe that he did raise a cup of blessing over a table meal with his disciples on the evening of his resurrection in Emmaus. And so the kingdom had come and perhaps that is what he was referring to. Other people might say, no, it's the the cup that we are going to share with him at the eschaton um, in that final marriage supper of the lamb that's described in revelation and i think it really could refer to both so jesus when he gave these this bread and wine to his disciples he wasn't asking them to be mere spectators of what was to come he was asking them to be partakers also to participate in this sacrifice by drinking the wine and the bread and so that each one of them knows when they took that and they did this in the future when we take that bread and wine we know that we are beneficiaries and partakers of his death. Drink it, eat it, this is for you, Jesus said. So here he's answering the disciples dilemma of how to continue to remain in communion with Him during his physical absence. So the continued active remembrance of Christ's sacrifice every Sunday in our Eucharist meal is thus a remembrance that is at the core of our faith. Remembrance isn't just mentally remembering something that happened in the past. That's not what it ever meant even for the Jews when God told them to make the Passover celebration a remembrance. It was because this was part of their story And it was affirming God's presence with them in the present, just like it also, for us, affirms that God is here in the present and not just in the past. We are remembering by bringing the past into the present. But remember what he said about, I will not drink this vine until my kingdom comes. When we do this act, though, we're not just remembering the past and making it present, we're looking to the future. Um, this is why in our Eucharistic prayers, we have this part where we speak to that final time when we will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I like to think of it this way, that we often think of time on a horizontal, horizontal, like past, present, future. So why don't we think about it vertically? Um, That being in Christ's presence means that we are participating in the past, but we also are participating in the present and the future because vertical is heaven reaching down to earth. So we are present sharers in Christ's sacrifice. His blood shed for us is effectual in the present and forever. We are Christ's own forever. This is why Paul speaks in Corinthians that the cup of thanksgiving refers to the cup of wine shared in remembrance meal as a participation in the blood of Christ. This cup of thanksgiving, is it not a participation in the sacrifice of Christ? So he's not addressing the question of whether or not the blood and wine are, in fact, physical. He's not talking about transubstantiation. He's simply saying that when we partake of this meal, we are partaking of Christ. We are partaking of his sacrifice as a true participation. So again, the Jewish background comes to play because the Jews understood that a share in a sacrifice was only possible with the physical consumption of the flesh of the victim. Maybe you don't know, but in every sacrificial Um, event that occurred. There were, you know, the sacrifices of atonement and there were the peace offerings, but they always sat down and ate together. They always sat down and ate the flesh of the sacrifice. So to participate in the Lord's Supper is to participate in the communion of Christ's sacrifice of blood. So also in this Corinthians passage, Paul is making a point not only about the vertical relationship between the church and their participation in Christ, but also about our horizontal relationship. These are astounding words. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. He's identifying the body of Christ with the bread. So the significance of this one loaf is expressed against this need that we need to be a united body. We need to be one loaf together and become the one body. In other words, in the Eucharist, the church becomes the church. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, you've just heard a sermon, and there was a lot of wonderful stuff in that sermon. Thank you very much. And a sermon, uh, I like to think of a sermon, or sometimes called a homily, as something that is not only instructive, uh, but it is life-giving. And it it brings us to the life in the blood. So the sermon is an appetizer, that actually wets our appetite for the feast, uh, in which we imbibe of Christ's presence, his living life blood presence. And uh, for me, if it's life-giving, that picture of Moses sprinkling the, bro- of the blood and then t- taken up into Jesus' lifeblood, that blood sprinkled is, doesn't symbolize death, but life itself. When I was in Indonesia, I'm ad living a little bit here That's for a friend. living. Um, <laughs> when we prayed against powers of darkness, we would sing this song, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And that power is life. And that power is deliverance. From darkness and from death. So, um, your sermon got me a little fired up there, Mary. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know if it did the same to you. But, um, so, in uh, in Bishop um, Justin Martyr's words, uh, the sermon is an exhortation to imitate the words of Scripture. Um, in, in that imitation, it demands a response from the people. So, so we don't hear a sermon just to be instructed by it, so that we know God. We hear a sermon so that we obey God, because. We, uh, life is, and meaning is brought to our lives, the life of Christ and meaning of Christ is brought to our lives as we step out in obedience to God, right? So um, it's demands a response. And the sermon, of course, is not just an essay or an inspirational talk. It's breaking open the word of God so that we might be fed by it, the appetizer that brings us to the main meal. Um, and I think also, as Mary preached, the full, the full sweep, the narrative of, of salvation history um, and of God's love for us, uh, a sermon should, should open that up for us and, and so that we find our place in that grand story. Uh, and it's marvelous to bring our story into that story and so it's integrated and assimilated into that story. Um, and then of course the only response here, which we don't say often enough perhaps, and it's not certainly not very vocally, is a loud... Amen. Amen, exactly, <laughs> thank you. Um, so that's what you say. Um, and and the, the and it's embodied and that amen is embodied actually in the in the reciting of the creed together um, and the, and the, the creed began to be recited within communion prayers in the late 5th century um, and on Sundays uh, I know it's a it's a statement of our of our official statement of the univer, of, of the universal church but it's also saying together yes and amen mm-hmm. to what we what we believe and what was just uh, given to us in the, in the liturgy of the word. Um, and the, uh, the uh, of course, uh, the, this is not the baptismal creed, which is the Apostles' creed, this would be the Nicene creed we're talking about here uh, that we that we say. Um, it is followed by the prayers of the people, uh, which was an innovation of Cranmer's in its 1552 prayer book. Um, and in this way, um, in the prayers of the people, Cranmer, returns to the general intercessions, the prayers of general intercession, spoken of by Justin Martyr. Remember him, we mentioned him earlier. Um, And these are the prayers of separation of of intercession, sorry, are different from the prayers of consecration. Um, And we move now to the confession. Um, It's placed as both a response to the liturgy of the word, and it's also, so we're responding to the word just heard, and it's preparation also now for the liturgy of the sacrament. Um, And Cranmer is the author of our classic confession, and he borrowed this language from the traditional, you heard Mary use the word serum, the serum rite, with a German confession in use in Reformation Germany. The Roman serum emphasizes the authority of the church to forgive sins. Cranmer, Cranmer, his absolution emphasizes, not just the authority of the church, but mostly emphasizes the promises of God to forgive. And so important, and I draw great comfort from these, the comfortable words from Scripture that we hear every Sunday after a confession. God pours His comfort and His love and His forgiveness into our hearts after we, after we confess. Um, and of course, it emphasizes that it is God who forgives And then we move from the confession, there's a beautiful momentum here in a movement through the service. We move from the confession to the saying of the peace. And in the peace, we're reminded that it is sin that has separated us uh, from one another. And sin, what does it do? It destroys our peace. Um, And in Christ, shalom, Christ says to us, he says to his disciples, fear not, our peace is restored. Uh, Our shame is done away with. Um, and we receive the assurances of the comfortable words, and then what do we do? With that assurance and that peace in our hearts, we can turn to one another and announce, this is a beautiful thing, we announce this good news to one another by greeting each other in peace. This is why a full-throated and a wonderful peace instead of that COVID just kinda like, you know, at peace, (laughs) (laughs) a fist bump. (laughs) So so this is all going on at peace. And then um, this follows also Paul's instructions to be at peace with each other and then to greet one another startlingly with a holy kiss. You have to be careful you do that with, but (laughs) that's a good thing to do. Um, The assimilation of a gesture of peace into the Eucharist is very early and it's widespread. Um, Justin Martyr actually describes that greeting with a kiss prior to the presentation of the bread and wine. Uh, Origen also does so and Tertullian. Um, So the new liturgies, Mary had mentioned of the 20th century return to this ancient custom. And its placement, really important here before communion, reminds us of this gospel admonition: If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. A peace is an opportunity to go up and restore yourself to a brother which you have some sort of entity. That's a beautiful
2: thing. We'll skip the Nicene Creed today, as that's required just for Sundays and major feast days, but let's turn to page 128 for the prayers of the people. Please stand.
3: Let us pray for the church and for the world saying, hear our prayer. For the peace of the whole world and for the well-being and unity of the people of God, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For Foley, our Archbishop, and for Martin, our Bishop, and for all the clergy and the people of our diocese and congregation, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For all those who proclaim the gospel at home and abroad, And for all who teach and disciple others, Lord, in your mercy. For our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted for the faith, Lord, in your mercy. For our nation, for all those in authority, and for all in public service, especially for our president and for our governor, Lord, in your mercy. For all those who are in trouble, sorrow, need, sickness, or any other adversity. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our and for all those who have departed this life in the certain hope of the resurrection, in thanksgiving let us pray, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer.
2: Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers for the sake of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.
0: Let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Most merciful God, we We confess confess that we have sinned sinned against against you you
2: in thought, word, and deed by what we have done. almighty god our heavenly father who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him have mercy upon you pardon and deliver you from all your sins confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through jesus christ our lord amen hear the word of god to all who truly turn to him come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is repitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Please stand for the peace. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Let us greet one another with a sign of peace. We can
0: to receive the offering of bread and wine you may be seated. Um, You notice that at this point all the liturgical action is moving from the pulpit to the altar because this is the locus of our sacramental presence of Christ. According to the gospel and St. Paul's account at the Last Supper as we just heard Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and we call these actions and they're indicated actually as headings in your order of service as taking giving thanks breaking and giving and those are called the fourfold dominical actions and that is the shape of our Eucharistic prayers and our Eucharistic celebration so the offertory presents the time when we give back to God the gifts that God has given us And the monetary offerings, um, we're not taking an offering tonight, but they're also an expression of our giving thanks because all things come from God. So after the offering is taken, this is the moment of the first dominical action is repeated. The bread and the wine are brought forward by the people, as it says in Justin's um, summary. Uh, In this case, we have the ushers bring it forward. And I literally take it from the, the people And when they bring it forward and so then that is the time when I also begin to set the table and this is done reverently because I am setting a table for a meal with Jesus and I always pour the wine very carefully into the chalice as a symbol of how Christ's blood is poured out for us and then notice that water is added to the wine and this was the practice with Jewish table wine but it also for the church has come to remind us of the blood and water that poured from Jesus' side and his death on the cross. And as the celebrant, or the president, it's often referred to, approaches, he is the first assisted in washing his hands. And this again was a very early um, action taken uh, from the 4th century and its purpose is to signify Uh, the purity of heart with which the priest properly approaches praying these prayers of consecration. So, um, let us begin. Well, we kind of (laughs) goofed. we put them here instead so So normally they would be brought to me (laughs) so let's just pretend (laughs) we didn't have our altar guild setting up that's why these little mistakes happen okay
2: Point, they sort of make a hinge from the offertory into the Eucharistic blessing, and we have this great offertory line at the bottom of page 131. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you.
1: So at this point, hopefully, our hearts have been drawn together into gratitude, into thanksgiving. Um, and that's, that's what we're moving into next, the thanksgiving portion of the Eucharistic rite, uh, in which with our prayers and songs of thanksgiving, um, and the blessing then, and then the setting apart, which is, of course, the consecration um, done by the celebrant, the president, of the consecration of the bread and wine to become for us the real body and blood, the real presence of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we, be, we begin this with uh, what we know is the, Surs, the Sursum corda an ancient, a very ancient song of praise. And it's been a regular part of Eucharistic prayers since the third century. Uh, but it also echoes a Jewish uh, form of a Sabbath blessing that even Jesus may have used at the Last Supper, so it's a strong association that draws back to our to our Jewish uh, colleagues, to our Jewish um, to, to those to, to our, our Jewish heritage, um, and this is a dialogue between. There's just some corda as a dialogue said between the celebrant and the congregation, um, and the response from the congregation and with your spirit uh, that that alludes to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Um, and then the words we lift up our hearts our vision then is is drawn from you know from inward and then and then to the table itself it's drawn upward to the heavenlies where even the angels and the Saints all join us in in our prayers of praise and thanksgiving and it's, it's a glorious moment in the service Um, And then of course the the corda is followed with a special thanksgiving, uh, spoken by the priest, and that is called the preface, which changes with the seasons. And notice uh, shortly how the preface, spoken by Father James, will give thanksgiving to the Father uh, for the cross and, in Easter season, the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, And then at that moment we we truly enter into the Holy Colts, and we repeat the words Isaiah heard the angels singing in his vision in Isaiah 6, of the Lord sitting on his throne, holy, holy, holy.
2: Please stand and we'll join together, starting at the top of page 132. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks, the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right, our duty and our joy, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But chiefly are we bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. For he is the true Paschal Lamb, who was offered for us, and has taken away the sin of the world, who by his death has destroyed death, and by his rising to life again, has won for us everlasting life. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn, to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, 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 Lord Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest.
0: central portion of now we're going to be moving into what we call the prayer of consecration which is a central prayer that we give here and it has seven elements which are listed in your order of service each having its own special relevance and each dating back as far as the third century Eucharistic prayers so first we recite salvation history which recalls for us God's creation man's fall and the coming of Christ to reconcile us to God next the priest says the words that jesus used in instituting holy communion proclaiming the mystery of faith and then we respond by proclaiming the mystery of faith called the gospel acclamation then we pray for the holy spirit to sanctify the gifts of bread and wine so that they may be the outward invisible sign of the inward and spiritual grace given to us in the body and blood of christ This is called the epiclesis, a Greek word for invocation of the Holy Spirit. And as well, we are asking the Holy Spirit to sanctify us to worthily receive the sacrament. We are reminded then that our vision is not to be just on this moment of time as the president prays a prayer of the anticipation of the eschaton, where we will feast with the Lord in the marriage feast of the lamb and see him face to face. So this entire prayer of consecration Concludes with a doxology to the Trinity and before the fraction then we will also recite the Lord's Prayer which reminds us that because of what Jesus has done we can now with assurance call God our Father.
2: You'll notice a few bells that were just rung and then we ring bells at other points in the service uh, as well. Um, In some ways that kind of completes the uh, or is another part of our whole bodily interaction with what's going on in the Eucharist. We hear these sounds which call us to pay attention. This is kind of another ancient tradition, especially from the medieval period, which lets us know that even though the whole liturgy is important, there may be something kind of extra important going on at this very moment here. So it captures our attention and it brings us up into the the sound of the bells that we may be hearing in, in the heavenly heavenlies. Um, as we get into the uh, prayer of consecration, you'll notice I do a number of gestures with my hands, and there's a fair amount of variety that priests have with what they do uh, with their hands. There's very little that is uh, specifically prescribed, like according to the rubrics. If you see in page what, page 133, there's a little line in italics that says something like, uh, "The celebrant is to hold or lay a hand upon the bread, and here to make may break the bread." Although the breaking also comes elsewhere. Those are the only real, requi- or real uh, instructions we have in the prayer book, but over the time there have been traditions that have come up, and a lot of the gestures that I think that we, we do kind of a- correspond to the theological meaning of what's happening here. So first off I do this gesture a lot. This is called the Oron's position, the prayer position. You can even see ancient iconography, like from the early church, where priests are doing this very gesture when they're doing prayers, um, and it's a sign that we are lifting our hands up and we are praying uh, to God. Um, taking the bread, the bread at certain times, the blessing. Uh, sometimes I do a gesture like this, where I talk about giving thanks. I picked that up from my old bishop in New England. I thought that was a great gesture. There, sort of like, this is yours, God. Like we are giving thanks to you for uh, for this. Um, the sign of the cross over um, objects when they're being blessed as well is a pretty standard thing, uh, especially in the Anglican standard text. The other liturgy we use, there's a line that says, "We bless and sanctify." And in the 1549 prayer book, back in in Cranmer's version, there were little crosses in those words, bless and sanctify, which indicated the priest, to make the sign of the cross, to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and wine. Uh, So I do that in that that liturgy. We don't have that line in this ancient text. Uh, May I make reference to the Epiclesis? Uh, as a calling upon of the spirit onto the bread and the wine so i often do this sort of gesture here which seems like a bringing together of you know, the hovering of the holy spirit over the bread and the wine bringing about the divine presence in this particular place for this particular um, reason and uh, parallel to that sometimes um, just flip over here briefly here on page 134 at the top you see it says sanctify them with your word and holy spirit be for your people the body and blood of your son Jesus Christ. That's the epiclesis here in this particular liturgy. And then there's sort of a calling on to the Holy Spirit onto us. Sanctify us also. There's like a parallel consecration almost going on there. We, we bless the bread. We call the Holy Spirit upon the bread and the wine. And then we also bless ourselves. We call the Holy Spirit down upon ourselves as well. So I often cross myself at that moment right there as an indication of the uh, sort of an epiclesis on us as, as individuals. So now let's continue back on page 132 with the prayer of consecration. You're welcome to stand or kneel as you're able. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered to himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection he he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory, that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. When he gave him thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. When he gave him thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit, to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us also, that we may wordly receive this holy sacrament, we may made one body with Him, that He may dwell in us and we in Him. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection unto your Christ, and bring us with all your saints into the joy of your heavenly kingdom, where we shall see our Lord face to face. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him, and with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Amen. and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us.
0: Therefore let us keep the peace.
2: Alleluia. in the prayer of humble access in the bottom of 135 we do not presume to come to this your table O merciful lord trusting in our own righteousness but in your presence we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table but you are the same lord whose character is always to have mercy grant us therefore gracious lord so to receive the flesh of your dear son jesus christ and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls with his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us amen and turn the page of the audience day on 136. lamb of god we take away the sin of the world have mercy on us Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us your peace. The gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in the remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed upon Him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep you in the of Christ keep you in a lasting life. The body of our Jesus Christ keep you in a lasting life. I pray for you. The body of our Jesus Christ keep you in a lasting life. That wasn't bought in rice. I shed a free for
0: The body of our Jesus Christ keep you in a lasting life. The blood of Christ shed for you.
1: Amen. Amen. Amen.
2: the blood of Christ the body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep you in everlasting life. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep you in
0: everlasting life. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ shed
1: final liturgical action we have just completed, finished, um, is the giving. And so when you have that fourfold framework, we take, we give, thanks, we break, and then we receive in the giving Christ's body and blood to us. And uh, it's served by the priest and deacon um, to each communicant and that assures us of Christ's death for each of us not a collective but each of us uh, and his promise of eternal life for uh, resurrection life for every single one of us um, and right before this this happened we, we prayed the prayer for purity of heart so that our hearts would be pure and whole so that we would be receptive to receive that which is given to us in communion. and that's the prayer of humble access it's it's a, it's a wonderful prayer Um, It's a prayer of faithful reception. But it's also an acknowledgement that we are indeed receiving uh, the true body and blood. And um, this prayer originated with St. Basil in 330 A.D. And that was before the Reformation. Um, We will conclude now with a post-communion prayer where Father James will sum up Gathered together all that has happened during our time of worship and also proclaim that what we have uh, partaken of as individuals now we also are acknowledging that we do it as a body as a family and we as a body as the bride have been united with christ the groom in the sacrament um, and we receive a blessing as we go uh, we are sent out into the world to do the work of god uh, faithfully uh, and in the words of, of our own uh, Bishop Bens, loving the unlovable, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, working for justice and peace, and reflecting the life and light of Christ into a world that is filled with darkness. And then the deacon dismisses us to do this work in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of resurrection life, and we go rejoicing with with great joy.
2: So let's join together with the post-communion prayer on page 137. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most most precious body and blood of your your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your son and heirs of your eternal kingdom and now father send us out to do the
0: work you have given
2: us to do to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of christ our lord to him to you and to the holy spirit be honor and glory now and forever amen
0: Go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks.